Hello and welcome to the Political Notebook podcast. I'm Billy Robb, I'm a high school teacher. And my dad, Robert Robb, is not here today. He's up in Flagstaff enjoying the cool weather. Uh, but I'm here with my younger brother, Danny Robb. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, good to be here. Danny is an ASU grad. In what year did you graduate? Um, I graduated in 2015. And what were your majors? Um, I had two majors. <laughs> I um, started out as an economics major, actually, but then switched to philosophy. And then in my last couple of years, and one of the reasons I added an extra year was to add a history major. So I ended right. up getting philosophy and history. And currently, you are a teacher, middle school teacher. Uh, and what subjects do you teach? Um, right now, I just finished up teaching sixth grade world history. Um, next year, I will be uh, teaching eighth grade AP world history. And what what is your favorite topic within world history when you get there with your students? Um, it's probably actually some of the stuff that <laughs> you right. brought me on to talk about today. Yeah. So we're um, here to talk about something very interesting. Uh, your thesis, so you're at the Honors College at ASU, and that entails a, a thesis project. So your thesis was a writing project on the history of science, and uh, it's about space exploration, but also about the age of discovery, uh, the European age of discovery, and also interesting, I think, relevant to this podcast, a political notebook, is the role of public-private partnerships uh, in general, and how specifically they uh, they work to fuel both the age of exploration back when they were Europeans were exploring the New World, uh, but also um, how they fueled uh, the space age, space exploration. So before we get into um, kind of your thesis and, and a couple different relevant areas, why did you, what drew you to this topic uh, of the history of science and, and space exploration? Um, you know, why do you care and why does it matter, do you think? Um, so the story of how I got interested in this stuff is, is related to the story of my shifting majors that uh, when I was first getting into philosophy, I was interested in a couple of different aspects of philosophy. Um, I was interested in philosophy of mind, and I was interested in the history and philosophy of science, which get lumped together, especially um, at ASU. And as I took more classes on the history and philosophy of science, I, got, I realized that I was a little bit more interested in the, the history side of that study. And so that's when I had my history major. And while I was going through this process in college, I had been um, following spaceflight a little more closely and thinking about the, the future of, of spaceflight and space exploration, which as an avid science fiction nerd, I had always <laughs> been uh, pretty interested in. And as I was getting ready to write my, my thesis, things in the spaceflight industry were converging at a very interesting point. And people were making lots of claims about how the future of spaceflight would um, kind of develop and about history. And I was interested in how much those claims had to them and how much they didn't and what we could uh -huh. actually learn from history for the future of space flight and space exploration. Cool. Well, let's learn some of that right now. Um, I, I see a thread. Uh, I haven't read your whole thesis, but I've read uh, some shortened down versions that you've um, been putting together this last couple of years. 
And what, one thing I get from your, from your writing is that um, what we learn about in school is like in, with, uh, you know, with Europeans exploring the new world and even with the space exploration is that you know, the government wants to do it, they pay for it, and, and it happens. And your, your writing, your thesis seems to explore the nuances of the government's role there. So let's, let's start with European exploration. Um, in what ways does... Do you see the nuance in what the governments of those uh, nation states, uh, the nuance of their role in, in exploration? Yeah, so um, as I started my thesis, I, I wanted to approach it um, a little bit scientifically. And I, I had um, kind of a certain hypothesis that, that I, w I had in mind, and I wanted to go into the historical data and sort of test that. When we learn about the history of um, European expansion in school. You get a sort of um, a narrative. And that narrative, I think, is really commonly held. I, I held the belief in this narrative um, going into this process that Europeans exploring the oceans um, and these continents that were new to them, um, but not, of course, new to the people who already lived there. Right, right. Um, <clears throat> was government directed. Uh -huh. You think of, of Christopher Columbus, you think of all these other figures, you think of, of these large monarchies putting a lot of money into um, going to the new world, setting up colonies, um, and exploring them to acquire new land. Uh -huh. And that was what I thought I was going to find. Um, and I was curious as to what the role of private enterprise was. That was the main sort of point of my thesis, was um, the developments in spaceflight that were happening seemed to involve a lot more um, private enterprise than I had been led to believe happened in European exploration. And so when I went to investigate exactly the um, like political and economic processes that enabled European exploration of the world, I discovered something very different from that narrative. So you started with uh, looking at the new, looking at the space program now, and seeing how there are so many political nuances, and seeing how private companies play a, a bigger role than you thought. So you took that and then went back yeah. into uh, into the European. I wanted to see how um, the process of European exploration and expansion compared to um, space exploration and expansion. Because, again, being a big science fiction nerd, when you read a lot of science fiction, these, um, these comparisons are implicitly or explicitly made. Uh, we turn uh, Captain James Cook into Captain James Kirk, mm -hmm. and we use naval um, yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. themes and terminology. Our kind of image of space exploration is is based on our image of European ocean exploration. And so I wanted to see if there's anything more to it. Mm -hmm. And so I started to, to dive in and, and try to figure out exactly the mechanics of this. How did exploration happen? Who paid for it? And what, if any, role did private enterprise, did private individuals or organizations play in that exploration and expansion and process. You, and you write about several examples. Maybe just give us, uh, yeah. from back then, give us just one example of a private company 
making a bigger influence than we might have learned in school. So what I discovered that was so counterintuitive was that um, there's actually a pattern. And so before I go into any specific examples, um, I want to take a look at that pattern. Mm -hmm. Because what I saw, I looked at the Spanish and Portuguese um, exploration because they were some of the first European powers right. to start discovering and putting down colonies. And um, when you look at them and the other European powers, what you see is actually a very short time period of government funding, of direct government funding of exploration and colonization. Um, starting in 1492, Columbus did receive a allowance from the Spanish monarchy. And they gave him money, but they also gave him promises that he would have control over any land that he encountered. He would be the governor of that land. And they funded, they and the other European powers funded some of the really, really early explorers. But around the 1520s, the early 1520s, just 30, 30 or some years after Columbus, that government funding dries up. And the reason is the context in which they started exploring and expanding. So let's, take a, let's look at the Spanish. Um, the Spanish and the Portuguese had been fighting the Reconquista, the reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula, which had been controlled by various Muslim empires for hundreds of years. And what's the Iberian Peninsula right now? So the Iberian Peninsula right now is Spain and Portugal. It's that portion of Europe on which um, Spain and Portugal exist. Yeah. And for hundreds of years in the Middle Ages, the um, expanding Muslim empires had taken over that territory. And starting um, in the Middle Ages, some European kingdoms started fighting to take that peninsula. So, so because of this conflict, uh, these two major European countries are in a, like I guess, occupied politically and financially. And it's to me in, in history, it's kind of it's kind of uh, it's both hard and easy to make past comparisons because I think you're. What you started saying was like I was looking at what's going on right now, and I was mm -hmm. like, "Wait, how did that happen in the past?" I think it's it's hard to wrap our minds around how war was waged back then. But you know, the the uh, mechanics of it probably very simple, very very basic uh, translations to now. You know, you get you need food for your troops, you need mm -hmm. uh, weapons, you want to you know government support uh, of that. You got a strategy, etc. Et et strategies, and and you you need ways to pay your troops too, mm -hmm. and so. Um, one of the ways in which the Spanish and Portuguese, or what the kingdoms that would eventually become Spain and Portugal, um, the way that they did this was very much in line with the, um, most people call it feudalism that existed in, in Europe at the time, that, although it didn't exist everywhere, and feudalism is just kind of a catch-all for a lot of different right. types of political systems. But essentially what they did was as they conquered new territory, um, they would give bits and pieces of that territory to some of the soldiers who, who fought for them. And in that way, they were able to fund the expansion of their kingdoms through expanding their kingdoms. Uh -huh. And this 
process took hundreds of years. So this was hundreds of years of these kingdoms on the Iberian Peninsula taking over territory, getting wealthier as their kingdoms became larger, um, and being able to justify it religiously. The Reconquista was um, happening before and during the Crusades. And so along with this, you have a um, sort of religious fervor that uh -huh. helps to, to motivate the soldiers and helps the, the monarchs to justify their actions of conquest. And it's these um, motivations and the rewards that they gain from, recon from reconquest, which eventually leads to expansion out of Europe because the last Muslim kingdom on the Iberian Peninsula, Granada, fell to Iberian forces in 1492. And the fact that that's the same year as yeah, Christopher Columbus's voyage <laughs> is not exactly a coincidence. It, it, th those things are, are very much related to one uh -huh. another. Um, because the Iberian powers were in um, economic competition with other European powers. And now one of their wellsprings of new territory and therefore new wealth was limited. Yeah. They had... Go, go ahead. ahead. And I wanted to stop because you mentioned a word that's going to be very important throughout this whole thing, which is competition. Yes. That you had two countries, uh, multiple countries competing for this new area. Back then you had this theory, you know, their economic modality was expand, get new stuff, you know, and it, and it makes your country richer. Yes. Um, so, um, so, yeah, there's competition not only between uh, countries for exploration, expansion, uh, but you also had from, you know, from what you're looking at, competition between individuals and, yes. and private companies. Uh, to get those, con would you call them contracts back then? Um, you would ma mainly call them charters. Um, um, and we'll get there in a minute. Okay. Because those, <laughs> those, those charters are based on um, what eventually, what kind of segues from the Reconquista into the actual motivations of exploration and expansion. So after that, they needed a way to um, fund their empires. And... At that time, the main way to get rich quick in Europe, if you were a government, was to get direct access to Asian luxury goods. Okay. And at that time, a few um, kind of historical processes had come together around the same time that the Reconquista ends. Those are that the, the Ottoman Empire has, by that point, taken control of Constantinople, and therefore the land routes that you would use to trade with um, Asia. That's what people call the Silk Road, right? Yeah. So, so, so before that, you would have to um, basically travel by uh, animal uh, from yep. one side or the other. And you probably have to cross different languages, different people Well, uh, the trade wasn't stuff. necessarily that long distance. It, it happened through a process called um, relay trade, where an individual trader wouldn't necessarily be going over the entire length of the Silk Road. Uh -huh. The products would, by being passed from one trader to okay. another. Um, and so 
but that is well, it's still pretty risky it oh seems yeah like it is risky um especially certain parts of it and in fact how active that those trade connections are between the east and the west vary throughout history depending on whether or not there is a large stable centralized empire to protect those trade routes when those empires don't exist trade along the silk road um declines okay by at this point though you do have some large stable countries and empires and that trade has been picking up in part due to um the the crusades as well and so the ottoman empire takes control over the land routes from europe to asia they are mm -hmm. kind of the middleman and um that's a problem for the european powers who want direct access to the these trade goods the other way that you can get access to those is over the mediterranean but the Italian city-states at the time, um, and it's, it's interesting to note that in this history, a lot of these explorers who are working for Spain and Portugal and England are actually Italians. Huh. Oh, yeah. That's um, true. And it's, it, it may be in part due to the fact that the Italians had been um, conducting this overseas trade for um, a couple hundred years by this point. And so they, had, they, had, they had craftsmen that are familiar with the business of... Uh, Going long distances to and try merchants. to get, get stuff, right. Mm -hmm. right. And so they had locked down trade on the Mediterranean, which meant that if you were way out in Western Europe, especially if you were on the very edge, if you were Portugal, Spain, England, France, if you wanted direct access to these Asian luxury goods, you basically had no options going east. Yeah. And... Um, then the Reconquista ends, Spain and Portugal no longer um, have any options for conquest other than to start going into North Africa. There are a lot of reasons why that's not desirable or feasible. And then this Italian guy comes up to them and <laughs> with um, an idea to sail west to get access to the, these trade systems. And the, the common myth is that... And you're talking about Christopher Columbus, yes, of course. yeah, Christopher Columbus. And the common myth is that, um, that people were skeptical of him because people at the time thought that the world was flat uh -huh. and that you couldn't sail west um, because you'd fall <clears throat> off the edge of the earth. Well, the, it's completely false. The, the Europeans and most people in the world had had a conception of the earth as a sphere since... Um, a couple thousand years Although before the that. Although the flat earth theory is making a... It's making a comeback. comeback right now. Yeah, especially in the NBA, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. Certain NBA players. Those scholars. <laughs> are. Maybe they'll be listening to the podcast. Maybe. Um, the, the, the real debate was over the, the size of, of the earth. And um, the mistake that Columbus made, which um, it doesn't make him... a a bumbling idiot, it makes him misinformed because nobody at the time had ways to confirm these. Right, right. Was that he thought that the world was way smaller than it actually is. So he thought that the, the trip from Europe to Asia would be short. Um, everybody else thought it would be long and that he wouldn't be able to make the trip. He would run out of supplies and, mm. and wouldn't find Asia. But long story short, he gets funded. And he is funded by the government. At this point, um, we get back to competition. Because 
the Spanish um, monarchy had consulted with their scholars, and their scholars had told them that um, Columbus was underestimating the uh, size of the world and that it wasn't really feasible. They funded him anyways because they were in competition. There is another way to Asia, and it's to sail around Africa. And Portugal had, for the past 50 or so years, been exploring that route. And in 1488, um, Bartolomeu Diaz returned from the Cape of Good Hope, showing that there was a route into the Indian Ocean. And so, um, in part because this competition was ramping up, and because Spain had signed a treaty with Portugal giving them a monopoly over, <laughs> over Atlantic trade, wow. Spain felt like it was their only option. And so they gave Columbus this lump sum of money. They sent him on his way. And he went on several expeditions to the lands that he had discovered. He died believing that he had actually found Asia. Um, but it very quickly became apparent that this was not Asia and was really lands that up until that point had been completely unknown to Europeans. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's that competition, that need for economic dominance that motivated Spain to actually fund these things. By the early 1520s, most of um, the, the uh, eastern coastline of the Americas had been mapped. And you start to see government funding dry up because they're starting to use a different tactic. Spending a ton of money on exploration or expansion is not how you necessarily make a lot of money as a government. And then you get to um, the story of Hernan Cortez, and who is another one that people have heard a lot about. So I wanted to focus and here's, on... And here's where we kind of transition from uh, your subject matter, which is world history, to my subject, which is uh, US history. And I, I think I, I know where the kind of the simplistic nature of the narrative comes from, because this is the kind of area where in U.S. history, we kind of, you know, we get into it, uh, and certain teachers, I think, get into it more. But it kind of, like, lends itself more to a simplistic narrative of right. uh, Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, Spain wanted to pay for it, and... Uh, and then colonization happened. And then, and then colonization. Boom, and, the Americas. And then, <laughs> and then some teachers kind of get into the, um, you know, get into the nuance of, uh, or the, the new, you know, the nuance of the different companies and how they made money and 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 the and the trade with France, because 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 you're talking about uh, how you know Spain goes into the south uh, and uh, colonizes, you know, Mexico, Central America. Uh, most parts of uh, South America, except for Portugal, mm -hmm. um, gets Brazil. Even going um, up into California, and, and it's yeah, and it's interesting. Mm -hmm. It is interesting for my students always uh, to kind of realize that um, how the languages are are different. So, okay, yeah. what do they speak English here? Okay, uh, I mean that that colonization uh, happened a little differently in the you know in the uh, British reasons for colonizing were were different. Uh, but yeah, down south you got um, speaking Spanish, and the French are up or up north, yep. um, speaking French. Um, let's—I've uh, got an idea. Let's let's turn this podcast into a two-part series. 
Okay. Um, but I want to finish up talking about the European side of exploration, and then uh, the next the next one we'll get into the actual space program um, right now. And, and uh, so the parallels that you draw are with the space program uh, after World War II, when we get into the Cold War uh, competition between Russia and the United States. Um, but let's let's do a part two. Uh, and just separate this into two pieces. But let's just finish our thought first yeah. on uh, on the points you're making. Uh, Christopher Columbus done his thing, found it. Now we have uh, Hernan Cortez. Uh, who's paying Who's paying his salary? So Hernan Cortez um, is an interesting episode because he was not directly funded by the Spanish monarchy, and his example starts to be used in Spanish colonization. He um, is funded by the governor of Cuba. And governors at this time were, were essentially feudal lords. They were given um, kind of territory to manage on behalf of, of the crown, and they were making their own money, essentially. And so Hernan Cortes is not talking to the Spanish government as he's setting this stuff up. He's talking to the governor of Cuba and other private investors. He manages to put together the capital to mount his expedition. And um, as we talk about European expansion and exploration, we always do have to talk about the government because they don't, they may stop funding things, but they stay hands. In control. They stay in control. <laughs> right, which means that if you're going to be conquering territory, um, you need permission from the government. They need to give you control over certain territories. Are they providing troops as well, or is that no. all funded by... They, give them the is, money, they just give the money, and they kind of take care of it on their own. Yeah, and, and at a certain point, they stop giving, giving money because the, the people who go and colonize are going to be making money for themselves gotcha. through the, the, the trade that they are starting to and conduct. And they're even... They're even uh, they're paying taxes, too, to the, yes. to the government, and right? and this Isn't... is the big thing. Um, this is the strategy of the, the European monarchies. This is when mercantilism starts to become the dominant economic strategy. And mercantilism is the idea that um, you want to um, export more than you import. And having colonies is a very easy way to do this because you can kind of control um, exactly how much they're producing, and you can bring all of those imports in, manufacture goods out of them, and send them back to colonies. And you're taxing that entire process. Mm -hmm. Because the ultimate goal for the Spanish monarchies, for all the monarchies in Europe, was to have gold or silver, um, some money in their coffers. And after the 1500s, after the early the first couple decades of the 1500s, they're starting to put this strategy into place. They don't want to be spending money. They just want to be taxing and making money. So Hernan Cortes mounts this expedition with what's as close as you can come to at the time to private capital. And he writes a letter to the Spanish monarchy asking for permission, but he actually sets off on his conquest before he even receives a reply. Uh -huh. So he just assumes the answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's where the phrase comes from. It's better to ask uh, 
what is it better, better to ask, ask forgiveness, forgiveness than, than permission? permission. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's sort of like that. And, and so this is a, <laughs> as close as you can come to at the time, a privately like planned and funded expedition. The monarchy only hears about it and <laughs> after it started. Uh-huh. Um, and so then you have the, his, his story. And um, at the cost of the of massacring and um, devastating local populations inadvertently through the disease as well as um, purposefully through conquest, mm-hmm. they, he starts to initiate the process of colonization of Mexico. And it's working very similarly to the way that the Reconquista worked. As he is conquering territory, he's giving bits of that territory to the people fighting for him. That's how these individuals are funding this, is they have control of the territory um, with official sanction, and they are using the techniques learned in the Reconquista to establish essentially their own private... um, their own private land holdings mm-hmm. that and they can, and they're drawing money from the farming and yeah. uh, different things are getting from the, yep. from the they land. are essentially, um, forcing the, um, native populations to work on those farms and using the production from that and to work in mines and using the production from that in order to enrich themselves. Um, is this a good place to pause and, and, and spliced it into two? Is there more, uh, any more thoughts on European side of the so, age of discovery you want to add to this? There's, there's one more thing. Okay. And it's because as in, in the next century, in the 1600s, it starts to get even more familiar. Um, the English, and, and, and we start to see the kind of nuances rather than the overall pattern. The, the Spanish and the Portuguese, it's um, a good way to see the overall pattern with um, the Hudson's Bay Company, you can start to see the specifics. And I'll just briefly um, yeah, yeah. give the listeners an idea um, of what that was like. And this like. is probably something that people have heard about in school before, um, but probably just briefly looked at a textbook. Yeah, and it, then it, had your a textbook <laughs> probably mentioned the Hudson's Bay Company, <laughs> and you probably forgot it immediately <laughs> after the test. Um, but it's, it's actually a very fascinating story. Um, so... The English and the French also wanted in on having Asian luxury goods. And the Spanish and the Portuguese had taken the routes around Africa and in, the Ameri- in, the, uh, in Mexico and South America. And so the English and French were looking for the Northwest Passage. Now, they never found it, but... Which is a water passage that goes... To Asia. Yes, over the top of the Americas, which oddly enough now, because of um, climate change, <laughs> has actually come to exist as of, um, I think, 2008 or so. Or wow, so. I didn't even know that. Yeah, within the last 20 years, the Northwest Passage has come into, an ex- not the way to, and come into existence. Not the way that Lewis and Clark thought it would happen. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will actually mention Lewis and Clark in a, in a minute. <laughs> Because that they also play into the narrative of exploration as a government-led process. But we'll, through the story of the Hudson Bay Company, you actually see that, once again, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, so the Hudson's Bay Company 
um, was started by a couple guys who had wanted to take advantage of the fact that there were a lot of beaver furs in um, what we would now call Canada, mm-hmm. around the Hudson's Bay. And they were able to get a charter from the English crown that gave them, and th- this is insane, this charter gave them control over the entire Hudson Bay and the drainage system connecting to it. And in one of the, the books I was reading, the author made note that this territory, which was given to a private company, and this is one of the very one of the first joint stock companies. Mm-hmm. This is a company as you would imagine it today, not a private, not, not a merchant guild, not okay. something more medieval. This is a company as you would imagine it. And they gave this private company a territory the size of the Holy Roman Empire. <laughs> and they didn't do a ton of colonization. They did just enough to support their trade, but it eventually led to them and other fur trading companies like this doing a lot of exploration. Mm-hmm. And in their story, you see the importance of competition because we're going to keep getting back to... Competition. <laughs> competition. Everybody. Um, because after they got well-established around the Hudson Bay, they started turning a, a steady profit. And for almost 80 years... They did no exploration beyond the Hudson Bay. They had competition with some other um, fur trading companies, which sometimes actually led to um, bloody conflict, <laughs> like like actual conflict. And the French and English governments had to get involved at some uh-huh. point. And so you keep seeing the governments coming in here. The governments are giving them a mono- monopoly. The governments are defending them by force if needed. But the governments are not actually funding them. Um, And the only thing that wakes them from their slumber, as um, one of the historians of this era put it, was competition. In fact, from an American company. Um, In the 1700s, the Northwest Company started trying to undercut the Hudson Bay Company. And they went around the Hudson Bay towards the Pacific Northwest and found new sources of furs. Well, this forced the Hudson's Bay Company... To go expand themselves. To go and expand themselves and themselves discover these new territories. And um, one of these expeditions done by one of these fur trading companies actually made it to the Pacific Ocean over 10 years before Lewis and Clark. I saw that in your writing, and that was was definitely definitely surprising. Um, And not the kind of thing that you can... I think grasp the depth of just from a quick survey of uh, of one of these topics. Right. Um, so the the overall pattern that you're seeing here is that um, originally exploration and, and expansion is done relatively privately. Um, it's done through these feudal lords, um, but then it quickly becomes if the geopolitical circumstances um, require it, governments start to get involved. And the geopolitical competition between the European powers motivated them to fund voyages of discovery and very early colonization. But it only lasted about 30 years. Mm-hmm. Once the geopolitical will had kind of died, it kind of it transitioned. 
it was almost like a, you know a relay runner passing the baton to the almost yeah. like the government the government drive uh, was for polit- geopolitical purposes, but then from there that 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 kind of like dissipated. But then the private companies that have been involved in making right. that happen, they kind of like take it from there and start doing their own right expansion. And the government leverages it for their own advantage um, and supports it. And that's a good place to uh, to stop. This is part one of um, the Political Notebook podcast exploring uh, how the age of exploration uh, is related to the age of discovery. Next time, uh, post it in a day or two. Um, we'll record it right now, but we'll split it up into into two different episodes. We'll talk about the space race and um, how public-private partnerships um, developed uh, to expand the space program uh, and the and the uh, technological race between the Russians and the United States, uh, as well as what's next with the with the space program. You've probably heard of SpaceX, um, but what are the new innovations and different options uh, that we could we could go in terms of our humanity and exploration? Thanks everyone for listening. This is the Political Notebook podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or any podcasting app.